Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fleek Home podcast. Um, today, I am once again joined by Daniel. Hello. And um, unfortunately, I am once again not joined by uh, our third cameraman, Finley. Uh, why, is, why is that, Daniel? Uh, so I think after, la- after last week, we had a bit of power struggle. He got, got kicked out. But um, unfortunately, he seems to have filed a lawsuit against us. So oh, no it, it, it's a bit of a tough case there. But, you know, I think we're going to push for it. And hopefully, like, you know, if, if we if we to some good terms, then by next week, he should be back on a podcast for you. Yeah, with a fresh new episode. Hopefully. We're, fingers crossed we'll get him back. Fingers crossed. Um, but anyway, uh, all that stuff aside, today we are doing an analysis of Vertigo, a 1958 Hitchcock film. Um, it's a thriller, considered to be one of the best films ever made. Often goes toe-to-toe with Sister Kane in film polls and film lists um, to be considered the best film of all time. Um, I feel like that's all the introduction it really needs. It's quite iconic at this point, which is an understatement. Um, so like with our last episode of Blade Runner, this is not going to be an overview. This is going to be um, mainly for our vision. It's an analysis. Um, we're going to try and cover a lot of topics like authorship, uh, links to Freud, um, different themes, etc. Um, so I guess the best place to start with this sort of topic is with um, the man behind the camera, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I, like with this film, he's considered to be one of the greatest directors of all time. A very iconic, one considered to be a celebrity more more than a director in some cases, but a director def- definitively. Um, there are many different influences he has, which are prevalent throughout the entire film. Um, there are the main ones I would say that are prevalent throughout are um, Soviet montage, which is influenced by Soviet cinema. Um, he grew up, um, well, he trained in German studios, and that was another evidence, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But while he was there, he watched many Soviet uh, silent films um, by the likes of Fritz Lang. Sergei Eisenstein is a big influence of his. Uh, he did Strike and Battleship Potemkin, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Fritz Lang has done Metropolis and Spioni. Or Spies, yeah. Or M. Um, or M, uh, which is, again, because it's one of the greatest films of all time. Um, and with the Soviet montage, um, the idea is that it's a combination of seemingly unrelated images that together form a whole narrative, a whole idea. And mm. that combined with the Kuleshov effect, um, which is yeah. take, taking three pieces of film, um, let's say first and third are a reaction and always changing the middle to change the an example, an example would just be like a man them. smiling. And first of all, in the first image, you see it's like a sandwich, and you can see like, oh, he's hungry. And in the second image, it's like a girl. It's like a feeling of lust. And it kind of, it changes the meaning depending on what the image is intercut with. So that's kind of a, a example of what called what a, effect is. What, what a visceral example that was. Um, and they are, those two elements are combined in one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is the uh, car, the first car following sequence. Brum, brum. Where, where, yeah. where, not, not, <laughs> where um, <laughs> not, not one line of dialogue is shown um, or, or mm. heard. It is pure cinema. We, we only see Scotty's. Um, it goes on for about 14 reaction. minutes, so. Quite long. reaction, 
what he sees in a POV and then his reaction to that POV. It's just that like constantly for the next 14 minutes and it is very effective, but we'll get into more, more of that later. Another influence he has, like I said, I mentioned briefly, was German cinema and German expressionism. German expressionism, which was revolutionized in the 1920s after World War I. Um, the, in, in this sort of idea, the Germans would try and, without dialogue, because they couldn't do dialogue with the silent era of cinema, they would yeah. try and um, use their production design to accentuate um, inner emotions or themes, like with the camera of Dr. Caligari. The emotion, the uh, sets are very um, obscured, very twisted, and that represents the emotions of the character on the screen. Very simple, but very, very effective way to communicate um, ideas with your dialogue. And that is very prevalent in this film. In, I would say the most prominent example is in the bathroom scene. There's that prolonged 360 degree rotating yeah. shot. And um, behind Scotty, he's clearly disturbed by something. And the set obscures into a sort of flashback of where Madeline died. Spoiler alert, yeah. she dies. Um, well, they both die. They both die, but spoiler alert for that as well. Um, yeah, spoiler alert yeah. from 1958 film. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, those are the main ones. They, there's obviously his time working in, in the silent era as an assistant director. Um, would obviously influence his... Personal, te- personal taste for as little dialogue as possible. He only believes to include it if it's purely essential. And that plays into the idea of pure cinema, which is, I think, at his most realised in this film, which I mentioned earlier with the 14-minute sequence of absolutely no dialogue, which yeah. is just, a, just as compelling, and if not more compelling, without with or without dialogue. Um, yeah. And, yeah, anything else you want to add to that, Daniel? Um, well, if you're kind of talking about, like... Um talkies or like pure cinema <clears throat> you'd basically say they're all part of um alfred hitchcock's kind of key style um so i think he he does definitely have a have a signature style as a director um and i'd say definitely one of the one of the themes he likes to explore in many of his films uh is the theme of identity and uh, mm. we do see this especially in vertigo um mainly through uh madeline and judy and the mix-up between them uh, so you obviously have the the like identity sort of changing or kind of Scotty um, trying to mould um, with it Judy into his perfect depiction, perfect depiction of um, Madeline. Um, I yeah. think that's quite interesting and, and that's definitely done with them. Um, that also gives an element of um, self-reflexicity, I think is the right way to put it, um, for the film. Hitchcock um, is a meticulous director. He demands great control over his actors. And Kim Novak recalls saying, I think it's in one of the books you might have released, um, that for the, for, the, for, the, for the initial scene of Scott following um, Madeleine, um, she is wearing a grey suit. And she thought that would be a very bad decision provided with her white hair. And she tried to contend with Hitchcock. And Hitchcock said, no, this is how I want it. It will make mm-hmm. the most sense. And in a, in a sense, um, Hitchcock is Scotty. He is meticulously crafting this idea of Madeleine, the character yeah. who's playing Judy or vice versa. And he is, apparently he was obsessive over the hair, obsessive <clears throat> over the dress, obsessive over the makeup. Alfred Hitchcock was actually quite infamous for being quite obsessive and controlling over his actors, um, especially his female actors. And there have been a lot of... Um, I suppose r- r- reports of him kind of being more 
definitely more controlling over his female actors and kind of just deciding what they should wear, how they Especially, should Especially um, Tippi Hedren from mm. The Birds and Marnie came out later yeah. saying Hitchcock was very inappropriate towards her. But that's, uh, and like, not appropriate in like the way you would initially think of it, but appropriate in like just how controlling he was. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 there's arguments that it was all in the sake of art and there's been a lot of debates about this, which we won't go into. But we it's just yeah. important to know that he was very obsessed with his productions and actors. Yeah, um, that's why he's become to known, become to be known as a, a lover for blonde women. Um, they are a sort of theme that, or idea, or character that is often in every film he does. I'm trying to think of one that isn't. But I can't think of one at the moment. North by Northwest. I haven't seen that film. <laughs> is there a blonde woman in that? Or? I haven't seen it. <laughs> well, from the films I can think of, all the women are blonde, but um, that that is could be totally incorrect. Um, through this, Hitchcock offers very voyeuristic pleasures to the audience, and in a, in as a sort of um, oh, what's the word? Compound, not compound, knock on effect um, himself. Alongside this, Hitchcock had a great fascination with um, Catholicism. Um, he grew up a Catholic. He is he was forced to be very religious. And as he grew up, um, he later, I think, no longer wants to be part of, part of this religion anymore. Um, but he still carries these Catholic ideas into his films, specifically Catholic guilt. And that plays a lot into the sort of forbidden love and forbidden connection most of these films have, especially Bertio, which is prominent through Scotty and Madeleine. Um, also in the film, there's a lot of religious imagery, um, especially specifically the graveyard scene. Um, and also, of course, Madeleine's death, both involved with church, some with organ music. It evokes this very heavenly feel, but also evokes a unsettling thing, like or very disturbing um plot development that's about to come um hmm. i suppose the catholic guilt is uh, mainly seen at the end of the film when you have that nun walk up the stairs and you have like just a silhouette but then obviously madeline is like oh not madeline um judy's like immediately immediately yeah but yeah she's, she's done well only part of that and, um, and and you also have that shot the, the god's eye view shot after m's death and uh, not m's death was madeline's death hmm. um Basically, uh, it's a matte painting, uh, another technique he used as opposed to, well, not opposed to green screens, but it was a green screen before a green screen, yeah. um, of Scotty leaving the uh, murder scene, or fully in the murder scene, I should say, um, as Madeleine lays dead on the rooftop of the church. It's almost yeah. as if God is judging Scotty for this action, even though I will, you could argue he is definitely judging Gavin in this situation, but you could also argue that this is Scotty's um, idea of God judging him for something he couldn't control. And in a sense, not being the man that he should be, which which um, brings up the theme of masculinity, which we'll go into very shortly. Because um, I think that's one of the, along with obsession, this film's definitely about masculinity and redefining it and... Um, sort of exposing it while also being the subject of the male gaze but we'll get into that because that's a very big thing to get into in a second um 
in this film, Hitchcock brings back Bernard Herrmann, obviously iconic music composer. Um, I think it was, it, was, it was this period between the 1950s and 1960s where he had this sort of prime team of individuals that he always pulled back for his films, and therefore he produced some of his like most career-defining films. Yeah, I think um, Herman did most of the music. Yeah, um, Bernard Herman, also Robert Burks for the cinematography, George Tomaske, I think I pronounced that correctly, for the editing, um, and there's like I think some similar production designers. And I mean, in fact, um, I believe the you know, the scene where um, Scotty um, Follow Madeleine, and they go. They she he follows her to the hotel. I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it's where he believes he sees her in the window, but the hotel manager insists that she's not there, and it's proved that she's not there. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? No. Ah, um, well, in the, well, that's that. The interior of that hotel is very, very similar to the interior of the Bates Hotel in Psycho. Um, and since the films were not made too far apart from each other, it's not un- it's not unlikely that um, then they're the same set. It's, it, they're, they're most likely the same set, redesigned, probably by the same production designers, used on the same back lot. It's all connected, um, and Hitchcock really had the support of this team to make some of his best films, which is, for, again, really prevalent um, in just the quality of the films that are made. <clears throat> So I touched on it like a couple of seconds ago, um, but this film is about obsession. And with that obsession, it is also about masculinity. And we'll start on that for a second. Um, I won't go too much into this, but there is a lot of um, phallic imagery in the film. Um, um, Golden Gate Bridge, church, it's all very male dominated. And that's not only in its production design, but also in its characters. Gavin is a prime example of this. I think Gavin is the only quote-unquote real man in the story by stereotypes. Um, He leeches off his wife's family for profit. He he uses very sneaky and corrupt tricks to get what he wants. And he uses Scotty, Madeleine and Judy sort of his pawns in like a bigger chess game just to suit his needs um this definitely evokes the idea of toxic masculinity and this is something that consumes scotty by the end as he drags madeleine up the church tower scotty on the other hand is not that masculine by traditional standards he is wimpish he is struck by this sort of not sort of this phobia, acrophobia that um, consumes him, consumes him throughout the rest of the film. Um, in the opening sequence where he's chasing the man, and obviously this obviously leads to the policeman's death. It's very interesting how we're not shown or told really how Scotty gets down because in that situation, I think it's very unrealistic for him to have survived that. And yeah. in a sense, that acts as a metaphor for Scotty throughout the rest of the film. He is hanging over this empty abyss about to fall in and is just hanging on by a thread. And this is accentuated through his fluctuating emotions and agoraphobia, which eventually leads to another person's death. It's all very cyclical and it's all very tragic in that sense. Um, and as a, as a plot develops, Scotty becomes harder and harder to sympathise for. 
as it becomes more and more toxic, more and more controlling and more and more obsessive. So I think as you were saying about the cyclical structure, um, that also aligns with the very key motif throughout the entire film, which is of the, the spirals. Um, I think Hitchcock uses the aggressively coloured spirals in the beginning um, to kind of disorientate the viewer. Um, and then that kind of mirrors um, sort of what, what um, Scotty feels when he adds his acrophobia hit. Yeah, and also in that opening sequence, um, the score by Bernard Herman is introduced and it's a very cyclical score. It's seemingly never ending. There's never any resolution to the score. It has this ambiguity to it, this uncertainty, and that is definitely in tandem with the visuals of the spirals. Um, I, I guess we should also develop more of the opening credit sequence. Um, the, the spirals are very sort of galaxy-like. They sort of evoke this universal feel, this sort of, again, cycle of tragedy and um, yeah. murder and corruption happening in the film. And we also have an indicator of, the first indicator of the male gaze in this film, which was criticised by Laura Mulvey in her essay. I think this film was like one of the main points she had about the male gaze. Mm. Um, There's a lot of extreme close-ups of this um, random woman, quite frankly. Yeah, I think think that was more about kind of the the obsession tone that's that's, um, shown throughout the film and how how the viewers kind of um, are basically not uh, like like told to obsess over this woman and all her details. And that's why they each take their time in a close-up. Mm. And you have this kind of it's sort of um it's a very, it's a very doled up face. It's a very um artificial looking face, which is kind of how how Scotty ends up molding Judy into this this fake woman or this 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 woman that she isn't really that that she, she isn't um as Madeline. Yeah. And I think that that kind of artificial look um mirrors that and the, the, the artificiality is all helped by the red light that is used over the woman in the opening credits um sort of evokes feeling of danger um and also passion which we'll see later on um i think actually i'll build on that point with with the idea of colors i think this is extremely beautiful looking film um which is full of color and that color is most i think highlighted in the restaurant scene uh, where Scotty is uh, forced to or ordered to by Gavin to scout out him and Madeleine just so he can get a, an, an idea of who she is, try and you know, get an identity. And I think it's another great example of pure cinema as mm. there's just this yeah. one long shot of sort of tracking shot of Scotty's gaze shifting towards Madeleine slow zoom into the back of her head with a spiral like your spiral thing you're talking about a second ago yeah and side note i think apparently hitchcock was obsessed with like women women's backs like how they turned away Um, yeah and this sort of idea of forbidden love and kathy gill is also important to that but that's a this is just so many analysis here um and obviously when she's wearing a green dress, which stands out from the red background, sort of... Green is also envy or jealousy. Envy, jealousy, and contrasts against passion and violence. Um, and in just that one shot alone, I think, and that shot of the red sort of um, increasing in its brightness in that close-up of Madeleine. Um, yeah. Definitely, in a sense, sums up the entire film in just... It's like blood... 
you're just too sh- yeah, thanks for that really descriptive analysis of Daniel mm. well, um, red red is like anger or or danger yes so. yes yes it's a it's such a amazingly um such, well, such, such, so, so, so much depth in that scene yeah um and apparently fun fact that scene was never gonna well, no, that shot of um Madeleine looking off in, in Scotty's POV and then the reds sort of being lit behind her um, was never going to be the final shot. It was oh, wow. the, the shot was going to be Madeleine looking off and then looking to Scotty and then like matching eyes. But Hitchcock yeah. in Jamaica, by the way, this is <laughs> the scene. <laughs> Hitchcock was in Jamaica and thought actually that wouldn't really work. So he got another director to direct that one shot. Um, yeah. A little bit of trivia for you there. Um, and uh, speaking of final shots, um, obviously at the time this film released, you had uh, the Hayes Code in effect, mm-hmm. and uh, this this was certainly something that affected a lot of films at the time, and it kind of affected what they could and couldn't show, and there were obviously a lot of restrictions, um, such as kind of I think I think the the length of kissing you can have on like prolonged uh, time, or um, basically the amount of violent material you could show. And also, mainly, is um, you you have to show kind of a a victory for the for the protagonist. You can't have the villain win. They yeah. have to they have to I don't know meet meet their meet their demise or or um, face face punishment for their action in some way. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, interesting enough, the original version, the theatrical release, had this this kind of altered scene that Vertigo didn't want to put on but was forced to um, of. Um, it's, it's kind of after Scotty is up the tower, he returns home, and all you hear over this radio is, "Oh, Gavin Elsa has been taken into custody, or whatever, for the for the murder of like two people, or whatever." Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know what exactly he says, but basically, yeah, yeah. you you have this radio just playing over, just and it, it's very clearly put in there for the sake of being put in there, just to wrap up all these ends. Um, but then, yeah, obviously, the I think the. I think the redone or the the ending Vertigo originally wanted is far better, and mainly because it leaves that um, it leaves the ambiguity at the end of the story, or you don't really know what happens to Scotty after that. He just he looked down and he's kind of got this this like face of awe, but also kind of I don't know he's not he's not like in tears. He's not fully upset, but you can see he's obviously quite shocked by it. I think that that's um that's just a really good final image for the. For the film there. And also the uh, the Hayes Code is very linked to the studio system. This was made in the golden era of Hollywood, um, which implemented these sort of codes. Another, another system that was in place was the star system and the use of James Stewart would have been very significant as he is known for playing these masculine heroic roles. He is always like the patriarch of the family, the war hero, the, the man who, you know, will do anything for his family. And in this film, he's quite frankly the opposite is wimpish and it's actually quite interesting how Hitchcock puts James Stewart in his films because this Andre window has him sort of held back yeah, real, real, yeah. real window he starts off with a broken leg so well no the entire film is in broken leg yeah um, yeah and so he's he's always emasculated is that the word emasculated I mean like I mean like from the first shot he has a broken leg yeah yeah, yeah. Um, he's always held back by this sort of hindrance that um, has a significant effect on his masculinity. We've talked about spirals as a return motif in the film, but I think another significant motif is the nosegay 
or the bouquet of flowers that Madeleine buys in the car chasing sequence, car, car following sequence. Um, these flowers represent the ideal version of Madeleine, this fictional character that Scotty is trying so desperately to have. Um, and it is also sort of represents Carlotta in a sense, but that's not really as significant. Um, we see uh, Madeleine uh, or Judy, however, however you want to put it, sort of tear apart this nosegay it's, it's, um, in under the Golden Gate Bridge, an iconic shot, um, before she tries and commits suicide. Um, in that, in that, in a sense, those that breaking apart, that de de petaling, I think if that's even a word, of the flower, um, symbolizes her self destruction. And then we eventually see in Scotty's dream um, that flower completely disintegrating into like nothing, and their death yeah. represents her death. Um, <clears throat> and this these this flower motif is um, uh, brought up later on um, very subtly. Um, Scotty for Judy um, buys her a single rose petal or not rose petal just a single rose it is a mere fraction of the beauty of the nosegay and sort of this it's quite very melancholic in the sense that Scotty is insinuating she'll never Judy will never be as beautiful as the artificial, artificial character she plays and there's a sense of tragedy to that and sort you could also maybe relate that back to Hitchcock and Kim Novak, but I'm not too sure if that lines up. Hitchcock did a very um, infamous interview with um, Truffaut. Um, I'm currently trying to read through that now. It's a very long interview, but um, it's very intriguing. And Truffaut is obviously one of the pioneers of the auteur theory, um, believing that the director is the true author of his or her or their films. Um, and while that's obviously very prevalent throughout this film, he always has a lot of recurring themes, ideas. I think the best way to analyze it is through Andrew Saris, who I believe is a film critic. And he, yeah. had, he had three sort of, sort of um, marks of an author. One of them was technique, the next was personal style, and the third was interior meaning. So with technique, what techniques would, would we say are in Hitchcock's films constantly and definitely in Vertigo. I've, I'll say definitely the, the dolly zoom in this or the, his, his uh, technical ability. Yeah, this, this is actually the first use of the dolly zoom, I think, in kind of no, mainstream. It, it, it wasn't the first, but it was the one that really sort of like popularized. Yeah, in, in, in mainstream, it's kind mm. of how, yeah. how people recognize it more. It is a pretty cool effect. Yeah, and I would also say his sort of subjective camera work. He only shows what he wants them to see. It's very specific and meticulous, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. His personal style, sort of the recurring themes, the wrong man. Um, yeah. What else would you say? Well, I'd just say kind of the, even like the, the as a directing style, the, the German expressionism that he, he yeah, incorporates. Yeah. The, 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 the Catholicism. Pure cinema. Pure cinema, suspense. He's quite to be the master of suspense. And obviously the flawed male characters. This is where um, this could be considered to be a bit of a stretch. But um, <clears throat> we have recently looked at Freud. He is a psychoanalysis, uh, mm. psychoanalyst, um, very interesting individual um, that I can't really go much into because that's a very long video. If I'm going to fully go into his work, yeah. um, but, he's a very complicated man. 
So Freud has a lot of influence on Hitchcock and we have learned about many different complexes. And I think one of my problems in this film is... The the id, the ego and the superego. That's not a complex, but that is true. Yes. That's the the three Freudian... uh, See, there's lots of different layers to this. So you have you have the, 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 those kind of three um those three main what do you call them like theories that Freud came up with, but then you've also got mainly the Freudian slip, which is uh which is an interesting one, which is kind of people people say what they they, they might mean, but it might be kind of a subconscious sort of thought. So um I can't think of an example of a Freudian slip. Um I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's in this film though. Freudian slip. I wouldn't say it's in this film. No, it, I'm trying to think of an example generally, but I don't I think I don't think we can we should really say. Um but yes, you are right. But I think you were made a good gun something good with the id, the super ego, and the ego. These three neuroses. Is it I think is it neuroses? Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Are, are sort of battling in this in in Scotty's mind with this one. Yeah. But um, one thing I wanted to point out was uh, the Oedipus complex, and that's prevalent between Oedipus. The Midge, Oedipus, sorry, Oedipus complex between Scotty and Midge. Uh, they used to uh, date. Midge, and Midge is obviously a very kind of caring and motherly figure. And very maternal, a, yeah. Not a not a, a lustful figure to Scotty. And, and to elaborate, the the how to say it again? Oedipus, Oedipus. Oedipus. Oedipus complex is when a child or the, the, the sort of son or daughter, oh, well, no, I don't know say this. So it's the, yeah, the child it's of... It's a son. It's a son. It, oh, it's the son. Has, oh, so it, 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 it's, it's when the son has feelings for the opposite sex, so the mum, but it's, it's the parents, basically. The son has sexual feelings for their mum because they're jealous of their dad. Yeah, that's sort of way to put it, yeah. 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 Um, And that's sort of hinted at between Midge and Scotty. But depending on how you deeply want to view this film, that's very subjective. Um, So we won't go too much into that at the moment. On that note, I think this is where we end the podcast. Obviously, we didn't review it this time, but um, if I could get a quick review out of you, Daniel, how are you going to rate this film? Uh... It's okay. It's not, it's not a terrible film. It's definitely not the best film of all time. Uh, I'll give it a solid 7 out of 10, I'd say. Mm, maybe an 8. Interesting. Uh, I, might, I might push to a 7 and a half, maybe an 8. Okay. Um, I remember I saw this for the first time. I wasn't... I liked it. I wasn't a huge fan of it. But I, it's really grown on me. Like, really grown on me. Especially how, like, deep and complex it is. And also how it's like one of the most captivating uses of pure cinema in a um, dialogue film um, or a film with sound, I should say. And um, I, 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 why it's not the best film of all time, I think it's one of the best, definitely. So I'm going to give it a nine out of ten. Well, we, all, we all know what the best film of all time is. What would that be, Daniel? <clears throat> it'll be the what film, it'll be episode 20 on our channel. Go check it out. Episode 20? Um, oh. Don't continue. That, that, that was very shameless. Daniel. I'll pl- I'll plug it up here for you in the in the top right. Oh, just if you watch it, uh, a quick link to it. <laughs> and on that note, um, we will end it here. Thank you very much for watching. We'll be back next time with and probably an analysis. 
And yeah, we'll uh, see you then. Bye. Bye.